Luke 24, from verse 36 to 47. And just a reminder before we read that this is God's word, this is the word of truth. Verse 36, while they were still talking about Jesus meeting Simon, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubt rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Well, good morning and happy Easter. It's great to be here to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, uh, those 2,000 years ago, and the fact that today Jesus is alive, having defeated death. Um, when I used to preach on this truth, the truth of the resurrection, um, evangelistically to people who aren't believers, my talk would go something like this. Death is a great enemy. Death is a horrible thing. And the great news is that Jesus has defeated death. And that was sort of self-evidently good news. But I found recently um, this message has had less traction because our society isn't actually agreed that death is a bad thing. Uh, so there's a movement in the United Kingdom. I don't think it's has got as much momentum here in South Africa but a movement to allow assisted dying, that people in hospital who are very unwell and have lost their quality of life should be able to have physician-assisted suicide. And the people who argue for this say, you know, there is a time when life's reached its end and it's enough, and it would be good to die. There's nothing wrong with death. Death is the natural end to a, a life um, enjoyed. Um, you might have seen on Netflix the Michael Schur series, The Good Place, if you're a Netflix watcher. And it's all about um, life after death. It's about the place you go after you die. It's a comedy. It's extremely well written. It's very gripping. Um, but as the seasons go on, I think by season four is the last one. They, sorry, I'm going to spoil the whole thing for you, but you can still enjoy seasons one to three. But at the end of season four they discover that actually being in heaven forever would be very boring. And they all opt out of that and instead choose annihilation. Because isn't it actually a good thing that we die? And if you believe this 21st century ideology that death is good, then a resurrection is no longer the great news that it once was. I don't want to be brought back. I've reached my natural end. I've had my time. 
Now, actually, I think very few of us believe the 21st century propaganda when it actually comes to death. Uh, when we get the phone call from the doctor and it's terrible news, uh, we, are, uh, we find it a great enemy. I, I lo last year lost a very good friend of mine. He was 51 um, to a brain tumor, a Christian man called Alan. Uh, death is a horrible thing. He left behind his wife and two teenage boys. Uh, last year, a very good friend of mine in uh, America lost their nine-year-old daughter very suddenly to leukemia. And I think when you face death like that, no one actually believes that death is good. Death is still an enemy. And it is amazing to know in the face of death, as my friends knew as they buried their daughter, that Jesus will one day take her by the hand and say, Talitha Kumai, little girl, get up. And we'll raise her, as he'll raise all of us. But actually, um, as I've been thinking about this, I realized that in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, there were also people who didn't believe that uh, the resurrection was necessary, was good. Uh, they were content that you lived your life and then you were annihilated. That A little bit like people believe today, many people, that we're just here by chance, as the great philosopher Bertrand Russell once put it, mankind is nothing but a chance collocation of atoms on a minor speck of interstellar dust. Slightly depressing, isn't it? But that's, that was his ideology as a naturalist. Or the French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, every living being was born without reason, prolongs itself out of weakness, and dies by chance. Uh, we're just here by accident. And people believe that in, in Jesus' day. And if you think that we're here by accident and your death is no more than the rearrangement of atoms on the surface of this planet, then a resurrection isn't obviously uh, an important thing. And so what, what Jesus does, and I was fascinated to discover this, is he actually reverses the two truths. Rather than saying death is a problem... And then the resurrection is good news. Jesus puts it the other way around. And he says, the resurrection tells you that death is a problem. And just bear with me and we'll see that logic. The resurrection is a fact. And it means you should worry about death more than maybe you ever have before. And I want to take us to a, a little story that Jesus told. And it's in Luke chapter 16. Maybe you can turn... To it with me. We're going to come back to the resurrection at the end, but I want to spend the first part of our time in Luke chapter 16. It's on page 1177 um, on the left-hand column there, where it says the rich man and Lazarus. And this is a fictional story that Jesus told one of his parables, but it's a fictional story that makes a very real point. It's a story of two men. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid or was sprawled a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Okay, this is a fictional story and it's a pretty black and white kind of extreme kind of story. So which would you rather be? out of these two men. It's not difficult, is it? Here's a man who is dressed in purple. That was the most expensive color 
that you could wear in the first century. Dyes were hard to come by. You couldn't get the sort of bright colors we wear nowadays. But by crushing a beetle that grows on oak trees, you could make things look very vivid purple. So if you're really rich, it was the equivalent of wearing Versace or um, Gucci. He was dressed always in the best cut suits, dyed in the most expensive color. Uh, he lived in luxury every day. And on the other end of the extreme is this beggar in absolute poverty who not only doesn't have any food, uh, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. You can imagine him going through the, the bins, through the rubbish, trying to find some scraps or some bones to gnaw on. Not only is he malnourished, but it's affecting his health and he's covered with festering sores. Two men which would you rather be? I mean, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? Everyone would like to be. Everyone aspires to be this rich man. Everyone pities this poor man, Lazarus. But then Jesus' story, like all good stories, has a twist to it. Two men, two destinies. And the thing about the two destinies is that, that they're a swap. They're the other way round to how people had lived up until that point. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side in paradise. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades or in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. I mean, it's quite an extreme story, isn't it? So two men that one is doing so well, one is doing so badly, and then two destinies, and they switch over, they swap over. Now, the point of Jesus' story is not that rich people automatically go to hell, and that poor people automatically go to paradise. That, that's not the point of the story. Jesus is just illustrating that there is a day beyond death where there's two different destinies, and if you ask the same question again, which one of these people would you rather be? Again, it's very obvious, isn't it? But this time, it's the other answer. I would rather be Lazarus. Now, here's the, here's the point. Which of these people you would rather be depends entirely on your time scale. If you consider this life only, everyone wants to be the rich man. If you consider eternity, everybody in their right mind wants to be Lazarus. And so Jesus' story invites us to consider, on what kind of time scale am I measuring my life? You know, do I just want to, in this life, have the best career, uh, the best car, the best health, the best family, to play the best golf with the best holidays, or the best children who go to the best schools and get the best grades? and then go to hell? Or, well, it doesn't really matter what happens to me in this life if one day I'll be in paradise. I mean, even if I were a beggar sprawled at the gate of a castle eating scraps, I could stomach that just for a few years if in the end, for eternity, I was with God in paradise. 
Do you see that the question of whether or not there is life after death changes entirely what actually matters? If we live only for this life, if only this life matters, who wouldn't want to be the rich man? But if there is a future life, a judgment day, two destinies, who wouldn't want to be Lazarus? And so it turns out to make the right decisions in this life, you really, really have to know whether there is a life after death. Like what timescale should I be working with here, Jesus? Two men, two destinies, too late. This is the most chilling part of the story, I think. Verse 26. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. These two destinies, once judgment days come, are fixed. Jesus doesn't believe in reincarnation going round over and over again. He doesn't believe in purgatory where you spend a bit of time being punished and then you get out. He believes in heaven and hell and they're fixed. Two men, two destinies, too late. But then finally, not too late. Uh, too late for the rich man, but not too late for everybody else. And I think this is the coming to the punchline of the story. He says, verse 27, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. I've got five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. To, to translate, he's saying, I've got family members who are living as though this life was all that there is. The only thing that they're caring about is whether they get to live in a castle and wear purple and, and wear fine linen and, eat, and live in luxury. And they've not even factored in to their plans that there might be a judgment day and destinations before that. Please tell them to consider the life to come. What would convince somebody to take seriously the final day of judgment and the life to come? What do you think? What would persuade them? Well, you'd think a resurrection would be pretty good news, wouldn't it? Like if somebody from the dead came back and said, just to tell you everybody, you know, there is something the other side of the grave and you ought to be concerned about it. You'd think that would be pretty good evidence. But then the final surprise of Jesus' story is that that isn't going to be enough. Verse 29, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. In other words, they have the, the Jewish scriptures the Old Testament. Let them listen to the Old Testament. No, Father Abraham, he says, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, this is a very instructive lesson for the preacher. Because Jesus is saying here that if I just do a talk about the resurrection of Jesus and how it's historically true and how the eyewitnesses confirm it, and that will not be enough to convince somebody who is not willing to listen to God, says Jesus. It's very sobering. I, I wish I could kind of argue people into believing in the resurrection purely by the evidence. 
But Jesus says you've got to understand that people aren't objective about evidence. People can bury their head in the sand and ignore evidence. You know, even the people who killed Jesus and knew he was resurrected managed to still reject him just by ignoring the evidence. You know, the soldiers who saw the stone rolled away at the tomb, uh, the Jewish council who couldn't find the body anymore, uh, they didn't immediately all become Christians. They just continued to ignore God. So here's the sobering lesson. If you won't listen to God, even a resurrection won't persuade you. But on the other hand, if you are open to the possibility of there being a God of such power that he made this world and could raise his son from the dead, well, that kind of openness, that open-mindedness, combined with the evidence of a resurrection ought to convince you. See, we're doing the talk the other way around. The talk used to go, death is bad and the resurrection is good news. And now I'm swapping it around. And I'm saying the resurrection means that death is very serious news because death is not the end. Death is the, the gateway to the judgment day, to the two destinations where each of us will spend eternity. In comparison with which, how rich or poor you are in this life is really almost an irrelevance. Who cares if you have to be a beggar for a few years before an eternity with God? And who cares if you gain the whole world in this life and then on the last day lose everything and find yourself in hell? You see, if there is a resurrection, it means that death is not the end. And if death is not the end, it means eternity matters more. And if eternity matters more, we've got to repent. You've got to get yourself right with God. In which case, the question is, well, is there a resurrection? You know, okay, I'm open to it. I, I know that the law and the prophets tell me about a God powerful enough to, to raise his son from the dead. But did it happen? Well, let's look finally and more briefly at Luke 24 on page 1190. Jesus, uh, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is actually multifaceted. Um, it begins with a Bible study where Jesus explains to them from Moses and the prophets that the Son of Man had to rise from the dead. You, know, you ought to have expected this. God had already predicted this. And then Jesus meets people and they recognize him. And then there's this discussion as we pick up in verse 36 where people are discussing the, the claim that Jesus has met Simon Peter. He comes and says, look, we, I've seen him. And they're talking about this. And while they're talking, Jesus turns up. Now, um, I've asked Shulter to help me. And Shulter is going to be, you're going to, I didn't tell you, he agreed without knowing what he was going to do. So thank you for that. Shulter is going to be um, Jesus. And if you can come and stand at the front, please. They were startled and frightened, frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Okay, now here's the question. Is this Salter or is this a ghost? And it's a reasonable question, isn't it? Because um, uh, uh, let's imagine um, that you wake up in the middle of the night and you see someone in your bedroom. And your question is, is this my husband or is this a ghost? It's a, it's, a fair, it's a fair question, and you want to know the answer, and so I suggest that you apply the two ghost tests. 
Um, and you can see them down in, in, the, in the Bible. I'm, I'm going to perform them in a minute on shelter. But see if you can spot what the ghost tests are. Jesus said, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. Shelter, can you show us your hands and your feet? Okay, he's got, he's got hands and feet. <laughs> That's very good. Now, actually, of course, I mean, this isn't Jesus. This is shelter. But when Jesus shows his hands and his feet... It's very significant, of course, because this is where they put the nails in when they killed him. So by seeing Jesus' hands and his feet, we can be absolutely sure, one, this is Jesus. Two, this is the person that they killed. So we know that he's died, and now we're just checking, is he resurrected or is he a ghost? Well, a ghost might have hands and feet. So how can we be sure? Well, look at my hands and my feet, touch me and see. A ghost has not, does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. So here's my test. If Shelter's a ghost, I'm guessing my hand is going to go right through. Okay, so let's try it. <laughs> he seems to actually be flesh and bones. Okay, but we've got to be more sure. That's ghost test number one. Can anyone tell me what ghost test number two might be? Have a look down at the Bible. What is it? Give him some... Give him some fish. Okay, I think we can all confirm, all being witnesses of this, this is not a ghost. Right, thank you very much, Shelter. Now, it's, you know, it's a bit silly and fun to do it in front of you, but can you see what objective evidence this is? This isn't just some people sort of hallucinated the idea of a resurrection that they kind of wanted to believe. This is people who had witnessed the execution of their friend, meeting him again, speaking to him, checking it was him by looking at his hands and his feet, seeing the, the execution scars, touching him, and watching him eat fish. You know, if he was a ghost, where did the fish go? It disappeared inside him. It's objective evidence. Now, some of my atheist friends said, say, oh, no, that can't have happened because you can't have resurrections. Because, you know, we're in a world that's here by chance and there's only the material and there's... It's a kind of circular argument, actually. They're saying, I know that there's not a God and because there's not a God, there's not a resurrection. And I want to say, well, what if your premise is wrong? What if actually there is a God? And if there is a God, he could easily do a resurrection. Jesus says if they won't listen to God, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, if, you're so, if you have such blind faith in atheism that your mind is already made up, even a resurrection won't convince you. But if you're open to the possibility of a God of such incredible power that he made this universe in the first place out of nothing, then he could easily breathe life into the dead. And then the question only comes, well, did he? Is there evidence of that? Well, yes, there is. Eyewitnesses who met him, saw him, touched him, fed him. And that means that we ought to take the rich man's warning seriously. I've got five brothers, he says. My five brothers are living as though this world was all that counted. 
they haven't even factored into their plans that one day they might meet God in his judgment throne. That it's not just the this life we have to worry about, but these two destinies, heaven and hell. If someone from the dead goes to warn them, surely that will persuade them to consider the life to come. And someone from the dead has come to warn us, to tell us about heaven and hell, but also to show us the way to heaven. Uh, not by being poor. Uh, living in poverty is no guarantee by itself that you'll go to heaven. Just as being rich is no automatic ticket to hell. But rather this, verse 45. Jesus opened their minds so they could understand Moses and the prophets, the scriptures. He told them, this is what's written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. That is the way to guarantee that with Abraham and with Lazarus, Lazarus you are in heaven forever with God. To seek the forgiveness that Jesus brought by his death on the cross. To repent, it means to turn back to God from your wandering or your rebellion. And then to be safe, not for this life only, but also for the life to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how we praise you for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But Lord, it does prove to us that there is a judgment day that you have set and that you've given proof of this to all by raising your son from the dead. Uh, we pray, Lord, that everybody here today, hearing this message, would be ready for that day of judgment. That we wouldn't be so foolish as to plan only for this life and the prosperity that we might find here. But, Lord, that we would give thought to the life to come, to the judgment day, to the realities of heaven and hell. And we pray, Lord, that by repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name, we would find ourselves safely in paradise with you. For Jesus' sake, amen.